to get a big table. So, so hopefully we'll see you tomorrow. We doing okay, bud? Twelve o'clock. Twelve o'clock tomorrow. I'll try to get there about a quarter till to get us a table. Village Inn. So, you're you're all, all the fellas are welcome. So you know we started out, uh, you know last week talking about kind of the the rhythm and flow of our Christian year that takes us on a, a journey as we talked about last week through the life of Jesus from his birth at Christmas on down to his death and resurrection at Easter. And we touched on the fact that inside that journey are, are separate little times and seasons that mark out particular aspects of our Lord's life and ministry and about the fact that the one we find ourselves in currently is a season called Epiphany. The, the season that takes us from last Sunday right up through Ash Wednesday. It's, it's a whole span of Sundays intended to focus on some of the key events in the life of our Lord where he showed us who he was in some pretty powerful and unexpected ways. Because remember, that, that's what the word epiphany actually means. It means to, to show up powerfully, to, to dramatically appear, to uh, show up in a sudden and unusual way. That's an epiphany. And as we come to our text uh, the lectionary reading for today brings us to another one of those spots in Jesus' life uh, where his presence was especially manifested with power, and that was at his baptism in the River Jordan. So if you have your Bibles with you, we're going to be looking uh, at the Gospel of Luke. And just by the way, this uh, lectionary year that we're in, uh, even though it jumps around a little bit, does have us looking quite a bit at the Gospel of Luke. So that's where you'll, you'll find us most Sundays through the rest of this year. <clears throat> We're looking at Luke chapter 3, uh, beginning in verse 15. So I'll be reading 15 to 17 and then 21 to 22. And brothers and sisters, this is the word of the true and living God through the writer Luke. So he tells us, uh, as the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but... He who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And I drop down to 21. And now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. And brothers and sisters, this is the word of God to us today. So let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for this story of the life of our Lord, this story that we find this epiphany season. And so we ask, Lord, that you would grant an epiphany in this congregation. I ask, Lord, that... There's even one here that doesn't know you as their Lord and Savior, that you would surprise them today, Lord, by the power of your presence, by the, uh, the call from your word. Uh, and you would grant in this time and this place the gift of salvation to any that don't currently have it. And so we trust in you for that, Lord. And we ask you to lend us your Holy Spirit as we go through these next brief moments uh, because we want to see Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Today's uh, reading marks, as I said, a very important event in our Lord's life. So important, in fact, that uh, Jesus' baptism is actually recorded in three out of the four gospel accounts. Uh, it's in Matthew chapter 3, 
in Mark chapter 1 and, of course, in, in Luke that I just read to you. And there's a whole lot going on in that story and a lot of details that we could really expand on and, and draw out. But there's one in particular that I just want us to focus on today, an idea that's really at the heart of this season of Epiphany. And that's the idea of Jesus as the God-man standing in and among and for his people. And so before we get to any of the parts about, you know, heaven being opened and, and the spirit descending and the voice from heaven, from the Father speaking, I just want you to picture with me in, in your mind, if you will, exactly where Jesus is placed in this story. So just, just try to imagine it. And Luke actually gives us the information all in one sentence, basically, when he said, and now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened. So he gives us a clue in the verse, and, I, and, and I'm, I'm no grammarian, and anybody who's ever had the misfortune to have to read one of my sermon texts or to proofread something that I wrote for school will tell you that I have only a passing familiarity with the finer points of punctuation. But, but I, do, I do know one thing. I do know enough to know that in that verse, the little middle section, if it's up on the screen there, uh, that spoke of Jesus was tucked in what's called a subordinate clause, right? It just means it's, it's not a whole thought by itself. And the verse could have very easily just have been read. Uh, now, when all the people were baptized, the heavens were opened. That's a completely different sentence, isn't it? Right. And so where does that put Jesus as far as his placement in the scene? Well, it puts him right in the middle, right? Right in the middle of that whole thing, right where he always goes. Right into the role that had been prepared for him from the beginning, right between the people on the one hand who are receiving a baptism of repentance and forgiveness and the voice of the holiness of God and the presence of the spirit attending from heaven on the other. Because see, he's, he's the only conduit through which those things can meet. Does that make sense? In fact, without Jesus in the middle of that sentence would have been a recipe for disaster because you would have had on the one hand the faulty, sinful, human-based religious practice on this side and the inapproachable holiness of God on the other side, and those two don't mix. They're not even remotely compatible. They're totally opposite ends of the spectrum, both forming up their respective corners between rebellion on one hand and the righteousness of God on the other, between hedonism on one side and, and holiness on the other, between finite beings made of flesh on one side and the spiritual host of heaven on the other, and suddenly, Here's Jesus standing in and among and between them, right? Between God and the people. Jesus Christ being at once the human son of Mary and the second member of the Trinity standing in the middle of the Jordan River, bridging the gap, as it were, between heaven and earth. Not merely like one, but as one from each side, being both the perfection of man and the fullness of the God in one. Being at one time the Lamb of God and the servant of the Lord all in one person. And at this baptism being inaugurated into his public ministry. A ministry that's eventually going to take him to his death through this act of baptism. Signaling that he is not only able but willing to play the role of mediator for us. And praise God for that, right? He's willing to become our redeemer because in his baptism church Jesus stepped down to our level. That's what he's doing. And he's telling us he's ready to accept the humiliation in our stead in the role of the Messiah. And in the role of a savior. 
and one that fulfills the terms of every bit of God's covenant for us, every single one of them down to the letter, including a baptism of repentance when he didn't have any sin to repent of, did he? See, but in doing it, he publicly chose to identify with sinners. And in so doing, he transformed this old Jewish ceremony into a brand new living sacrament. Because remember, John's baptism under the old covenant is a lot different from our Christian baptisms, isn't it? Right? Remember, John's wasn't a baptism in the name of the Trinity to mark out folks for membership in the church. No, his was a baptism whose focus was on the need for people uh, particularly the people of God, to repent of their sins. Sins that put them in breach of their covenant bond that God had made with his people at Mount Sinai. Because they'd broken their word, right? They, they'd broken their marriage promise, as it were. And now, in this act of reconciliation, they've been invited back into the wilderness to repent. And to do it in the waters of John's baptism that were symbolic of their need for spiritual and physical cleansing. But, but now suddenly in the middle of the story, almost out of nowhere, here comes Jesus to be baptized. But as I said, he's got nothing to be baptized for. He was, as John the Baptist said earlier in the text, if you look further back in Luke, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But now here's Jesus standing in the water of the Jordan River asking John the Baptist to pour water over him in public in front of thousands and thousands of other men and women. Some uh, Jewish scholars have suggested there may be as many as 300,000 people who had been baptized by John. Now, not all at once, of course, but they just kept coming and coming and continually coming. And they came from all over Judea and all over Jerusalem. And now here's Jesus. And he's standing in one of these, these shallow sections of the Jordan and John's pouring water over him. When if you think about it, Jesus just could have easily said, hey folks, you're on your own for this one. Right? I, I don't need to do this part. I don't have any sin to repent of. But instead he identifies himself with us so that we can, through him, begin the process of what theologians have called the great exchange. We've talked about this before, but you see, we, we need righteousness to be acceptable to God but we don't have it, do we? What do we have? Sin. Yeah. And, and, and God has what we need but could never earn, and that's righteousness. So, so what's God's answer to the situation? Well, his answer is in Jesus Christ, the Son of God and the Son of Man, who not only died in our place and bore our condemnation, but church, he lived in our place too. He lived in our place, fulfilling every single thing that the law of God requires. That's what's called his act of obedience on our behalf. And this is an idea that's important. This is not just some theological curiosity or just something to debate in seminary lecture halls about the difference between his active and passive obedience. This is really a very practical piece of doctrine that we really need to understand. So just, just very simply... Uh, easy way to think about it is when we think about Jesus' time on the cross, we're talking about his, his passive obedience, right? That's something he allowed to happen to himself for the payment of our sins. But brothers and sisters, as I said, Christ did more than just die for us. He lived for us. Uh, otherwise, and I want you to think about this, why didn't Jesus just ascend straight from heaven, go directly to the cross and be done with the whole thing in one weekend? Right? 
If he didn't need to live for us, why not just come straight down from heaven, go to the cross, die, be resurrected, one weekend done? I mean, why, why would he live 33 some odd years on the planet knowing that he was headed to that end anyway? Why not just get the whole thing over and get to Calvary on day one? But no, because he actually needed to live in and with and for us to bring us into a right relationship with himself. And I'll give you a quick example of why that matters. And this may help, but I've told, I've told this example in Bible study several times, but I think it bears repeating. So just imagine yourself and you owe someone $100 million, right? A, a debt you could, could never, never possibly repay. And now suddenly someone comes along and pays that debt. And, and so you don't owe anything at all anymore, but guess what you also don't have? You don't have anything either, right? You, you've just come up from $100 million in the hole but you've just come up to zero, right? That, that, that's all you have is zero. Now imagine though that same scenario, but this time someone comes along and not only pays this $100 million debt that you could never hope to pay, but hands you another $100 million to keep. Church, that's what Jesus Christ has done for us. He paid our sin debt and he loaded our account with his righteousness through his passive obedience on the cross, where he paid the debt for our sin and through his active obedience, in his sinless life, willingly, actively obeying God's regulations in all of his life, from his, his infancy to his childhood to his young adult life that led him right to this moment that we read about in his baptism. And we know that God the Father accepted this life that we live because today in the text we find out Jesus is publicly anointed by the Holy Spirit. And just try to imagine that part, right? Imagine this scene when the Bible says that the heavens are torn open. Now, and I know there's some really wonderful paintings that try to depict it, but I don't think there's any way we can even possibly imagine it, do you? Uh, as the Spirit descends in Christ's baptism now in this context, again, rather than being done for repentance, is instead, as we said, an anointing. It's an ordination for his public ministry. And, and Jesus comes up from this water of baptism, and he has a vision, right? He, he looks up and he sees heaven opened. And he sees the Holy Spirit descending from God in the bodily form like a dove. And he hears a voice from heaven saying, you are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And so all three of these things serving as an acknowledgement that Jesus is now that bridge between God on one side and man on the other. And that access to God is made only in him. Not, not in any religion, not in any law, but church in the person and work of Jesus Christ alone. And those, those heavens that were torn open that the gospel writer describes at Jesus' baptism, they're never going to be shut for us again. Never. For all who put their hope in him through faith. And I think it's really interesting here to note, too, the only other time in Scripture that this, this same word for rending or tearing apart that's used to describe the heavens is when the Bible describes the tearing of the veil in the temple. Right? It's the only other time. So the Bible talks about the heavens being torn open in his baptism and then the tearing of the veil in the temple after Jesus' death. And so in both cases, it's pictorial language describing the epiphany that now God is really close. He's coming really close to his people now. He's interacting directly with us in a more personal way. Because think about it. Now, God's always had a mediator. He's always had a, had a go-between to bridge the gulf between humanity and his holiness. Right there, there was Moses who, who stood between God and the people on Mount Sinai. And, and then there were uh, a whole list of prophets and, 
and priests and, and kings who heard and who wrote and who spoke the word. But now, Jesus is bringing those two halves together. They're moving closer together as he takes on himself all of those roles. As he takes on those three holy offices that he fulfilled, a prophet and priest and king, all in himself. And he does it in the full power and the full holiness of the triune God. As that audible voice of God the Father and the visible movement of the Spirit combine together in and around the person of Jesus Christ, the Son. And I want you to notice that that makes the accomplishment of our redemption on our behalf completely Trinitarian, which is something we don't focus on very much, right? So there's all three, there's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the three persons in one God combined together in perfect fulfillment of a promise to save a people for himself. And church, this is important. Please, please don't miss this. I know, you know, we don't often focus on the importance of the Trinity, do we? Uh, it's something we should focus on more because the danger is, for all intents and purposes, we become practically Unitarians in our worship. And it can happen in different ways. We have uh, brothers and sisters in the Pentecostal movement that often overemphasize the movement of the Holy Spirit at the expense of Christ and of the Father. We have a lot of modern uh, seeker-friendly churches that only talk about God, just God, no mention of the Spirit, no mention of the Son. Uh, but as a church, we want to make sure that we proclaim the supremacy and majesty of Christ, and we do it in a way and in a context that always points to the Trinity. Right, just like Paul and the apostles always did, uh, emphasized in language that they used all through their writings, like, like saying that when Paul wrote, uh, proclaiming the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. He said, may they be with you all. And, and, and doing it not only because all three are equally God, but because all three are so lovingly and intimately involved in your salvation. Involved in a plan that was conceived by the Father in eternity past. And, and revealed by the Holy Spirit to the prophets. And carried out by our Lord Jesus for the benefit of the people that that one Godhead chose to create and redeem. And brothers and sisters, because of that, in that great coming kingdom we're looking for, because all of God was involved, there's not going to be one empty seat in heaven. There won't be one missing of all of the elect because all of God was involved. And praise God, our salvation doesn't depend on us. Amen. Amen. Yeah. Right. Believe me, and I said this last Wednesday night, if it were possible to lose your salvation, I would have lost mine a hundred times by now. But God, the Bible says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved and raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages, we might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And all of those things, brothers and sisters, because Christ chose to be our middleman, right in the middle, right where we've seen him from the beginning, and he did it right to the very end, chose to be caught between his supposed friend Judas who betrayed him and the mob who wanted to arrest him. All because he chose to be stuck in the middle of Jewish laws that they claimed he violated and the Roman authorities who had ultimate jurisdiction in his case. 
All because Christ chose to be caught between religious leaders who couldn't stand him because he claimed to be the son of God and the civil authorities who wouldn't tolerate a rival king. And why? Because, and we talked about this in Sunday school too, because they knew that the claims Jesus made would put a squeeze on their own personal choices and would curb their sinful lifestyles and would command their obedience. And so rather than accept him, they had to exterminate him. And brothers and sisters, Christ let them do it. Don't be mistaken, he was not murdered. He was not assassinated. He went willingly to the cross, willingly, because he still had some serious mediation to do. And the Bible tells us that when they led our Lord away to be crucified, that two others, both criminals, were led out to be executed with him. And they came to a place called the Skull. And they nailed him to the cross, and the criminals were also crucified. Look at this, one on his right and one on his left. One of the criminals hanging beside him scoffed, so you're the Messiah, are you? Well, prove it by saving yourself and us too while you're at it. But the other criminal protested, don't you fear God even when you've been sentenced to die? We deserve to die for our crimes, but this man has not done anything wrong. And then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replied, I assure you today, you will be with me in paradise. And brothers and sisters, there's Jesus right in the middle till the end. Forgiving, redeeming, saving. But I hope you notice there's a little twist right here. There's a kind of a switch because this is the point where you and I are stuck in the middle. Right? Which thief are you today? Right or left? You see, Christ has done all the work. The way is open. The path is clear. The offer is extended. And here we stand in the middle of the forked road between heaven and hell. And so I urge you today, if the Holy Spirit is calling out for you to receive the forgiveness that's been offered by that man on the middle cross, don't leave here today without doing that. And you can do it right where you are. You don't have to, you don't have to walk down the aisle. You don't have to repeat any kind of special prayer. You don't have to work for it and you can't earn it. Just receive it today in Jesus' name. He's done all the work so that if you and I were to die tonight and found ourselves at the gates of heaven being asked by God, uh, why should I let you into my kingdom? Why? You won't have to fumble around for what to say. And you won't have to try to embellish your track record. And you won't have to try to give all those because I answered. You know what I'm talking about? But because I believe, because I chose because I dedicated my life to the church or donated money because I this or because I that because no the only proper answer is because he because he because he said because the man on the middle cross made a way for me and church he did that from the moment he arrived on this planet from the cradle to the grave from the banks of the Jordan River in his baptism to the hill of Golgotha and from the empty tomb to the throne of heaven. And he did it right in the middle of our deepest need to make a place for us in the center of his greatest gift by the washing of water with the word. So that one day, and maybe sooner than we think, the father will look at us too, just like he did at Jesus in the Jordan and say, this is my beloved in whom I am well pleased. Amen. Let's pray again. Father God, we thank you so much that you were willing to send your son conceived in the Virgin Mary by your Holy Spirit. And so all of the Godhead 
combine together to bring about the, the offer of salvation that's been extended in this service. And so we ask, Lord, uh, that you would open hearts and you would save folks today, Lord. We know that only you can do it. Um, I can preach from now until midnight tonight and not change a single heart, but the Holy Spirit opens eyes, removes hearts of stone and gives hearts of flesh. It fills folks with your spirit. It opens ears. And so we ask, Lord, that you would do that and accomplish that in this message and in this service. We thank you, Lord, for uh, the example and the message of your son for all of us who are already in the kingdom. And we ask that you would be with us, Lord, as we go out this week, uh, that we would share that good news and that invitation with everyone that we come in contact with. And so we thank you for it and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.